Father, we long that you would humble us as we come before you and your word this morning. We pray that we might recognise the very words of the living God. And we pray for your help to not simply hear, but to live and to apply. For your glory and for our good. Amen. I'd like you, please, to cast your minds back to Boxing Day. And we, the Steels, we had some very good friends come to visit us. It was great to see them. They were staying the night. They arrived early evening when it was still dark. They hadn't been to our place before, so they pulled left into our little road and then left into our garden. And they parked next to our car. Our car was on the drive. They slipped in next to us on a little sloping lawn. The reason they were coming was we were going to a wedding the next day in Ensham. But you remember, they had parked on a slope, on grass, and it was wet. And it turned out their car is pretty good at wheel spinning, on a wet grass, on a slope, next to our car. Their car is better than average, I would say, at destroying lawns. Their car can certainly send mud flying around the place with the best of them, which was, which was quite amusing at the time because we were in our wedding clothes. It means that our front garden now, and if you've been, you'll know this, it looks a bit like a mud bath. If you add to that the various delivery vans, who seem to have done similar things while we've been out, you will see that it is a muddy, mucky mess. Now cast your minds back to last Tuesday. Tuesday morning, and you imagine yourself in the steel household, woken up at 7am by excited, bouncing children whose, whose persistent, fervent prayers have been answered. Because you look out of the window, and what do you see in our front garden? Our lawn looks perfect. Absolutely perfect. It's flawless. Gone are the muddy, mucky tyre tracks. Gone is the mess. For now it is covered in a perfect, pure blanket of white. It has snowed all night. But then cast your minds back to Tuesday afternoon. Temperatures go up, snow melts, disappears, and out comes the mud and the tyre tracks and the mess. Of course, they had never really gone. They were always there, just hiding. And as we think about uncleanness this morning, isn't that a picture of us? Inside, God is at work, but, but we still know that we're a mess. We know our hearts are far from what they ought to be. We, we know the shame that we talked of last week, and I've spoken to some of you this week. It's not just theory. These aren't just ideas. And so outside, we've learned how to cover it up. We know how to wear the mask and play the part and, and look like we're together, look like we're sorted. But underneath the beautiful, calm exterior, underneath we're just a muddy mess of tyre tracks and self-centeredness. And we've become experts at delicately laying a, layering a layer of snow to cover up the reality. Of course, the reality is still there. Maybe something happens and the mask slips and people get a peek of the real us, or maybe we, we trust someone enough to be the real us and to really let them in. But at the heart of Mark 7 for this morning lies that truth. 
It's a passage about being clean. A passage about being undefiled and pure and holy before God. And yet so often we think or perhaps we live as if being clean, holy, acceptable, pure before God is about externals. It's just a blanket of snow over the top. What we'll see as we dig into the passage is that God is all about the internals and the heart. Before we jump in, just a reminder, perhaps you're visiting us or welcome back Oxford Brooks. Christmas has finished. Reminder of where we've come from so far. In many ways it's been quite a painful series. But it's been a series of joy as we've thought about our sin. We've explored something of the, the depth and the breadth of our sin, or our rebellion against God. And so we're beginning to realise that the cross is more glorious and more beautiful and higher than we had ever imagined. But some Christians will think we're getting it wrong. They will say that just to focus on sin all the time is, is really unhelpful. What you should do is focus on people's self-esteem. We're not so bad, really. You just need a bit of help, a bit of education. Stop focusing on the sin and remember more of the good stuff. And maybe that's you this morning. But as I read the Bible and in my experience and as I speak to other people, it, it's as we get the reality of the bad news the depths of what we're really like, our depravity, that we then see how good is the good news, how loving God is, how extraordinary is the gospel. So what we're doing is we are, are thinking about sin from all kinds of different angles in the Bible, through different models and metaphors, exploring the richness of the Bible language. And what we've seen is it's, Described as idolatry and it's adultery. Sin is profoundly personal. We've seen, I suppose last week, it's about shame. This week we'll see it's uncleanness, it's dirt, it's, it's defilement. But again, we will see how extraordinary God's love for us is. That, that he loves us despite the reality of our hearts and our sin. Now, I think at some level, many, if not all, of humanity can associate with this idea of dirt and uncleanness, the need to be clean before a pure God. Think of world religions, think of Muslims, perhaps friends that you have, people in our city. Think of ritual washings before prayers or reading the scriptures or eating only food that is lawful and halal, food that won't defile you. Think of Hinduism. If you've seen the pictures, think of the mass pilgrimage to the Ganges. Have a look there. Extraordinary images. February 2013, 30 million devotees gathered to bathe to wash away a lifetime of sins. The largest gathering of people in one place for a single event in the whole of human history. Piling into the water. Wanting to be clean. Wanting to be pure. Or maybe even in popular culture. Two current songs in the, uh, the charts. I'm told there's someone called Taylor Swift. I'm told that one of her songs is to do with a particularly painful breakup, which is probably about Harry Styles, if you know about these things. 
But the lyrics go like this. Rain came pouring down when I was drowning. That's when I could finally breathe. And that morning, gone was any trace of you. I think I'm finally clean. She wants cleansing from him. She wants to be clean. She wants to wash all the traces of this relationship away. Or a similar one from Ella Henderson, I'm told. I keep going to the river to pray because I need something that can wash out the pain. Don't you know something of that? That feeling of disease and dirt, of wanting to be washed and made clean? Perhaps washed from experiences or people or our past or, or washed from the inside? Washed from what we know to be there? It seems to me it's everywhere in the world. It's all around us. It's that feeling that if people actually knew what we were like, what we were really like, if they got through all the various layers and the shells and the self-confidence and the image, if they, knew the re- if they really knew you, the real you, then you're not actually sure they would really want to know you. A question that we didn't ask last week, but I'll ask this week is this. Just imagine for a moment that I have perfect mind-reading abilities. Completely perfect. I can see into your head, each of you. I can see into your life. And I know what you're thinking. And I know what you thought. And I know what you've done. And I know everything. Absolutely everything. How are you feeling about that? How would that be for you? We'd find that very hard, wouldn't we? Because when the internals are out, when we feel, then we feel exposed and vulnerable and and dirty. Well, so Mark 7 this morning is a passage about someone's heart. And it's about our hearts that make us unclean. Have a look at 1 to 5 with me. It's page 1010 if you've got a church Bible. And I'm going to read verse 1 to 5. And as I read it, I want you to notice something of the language of, of washing and defilement. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now the background to this is important. It's in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God gave Moses and his people cleanliness laws. So for example, for Israel at the time, if you touched a dead animal or a human or you had infectious skin diseases or boils or you came into contact with mildew or had bodily discharge or you ate the meat of of an animal regarded as unclean, then you were unclean. You were ceremonially impure. You were defiled and so you were separated from God. You couldn't enter the temple. You couldn't worship at least until you'd been made clean again. And what these laws were, were a massive teaching aid. 
these God-given laws that shaped all of life were to impress upon an Israelite that to be in the presence of a pure and holy God, you must be clean. And of course, they wanted to be clean. They didn't want to be separated from God. And so they added to them. Verse 3 and 4 and 5. There's ceremonial hand-washing and pitchers and kettles and pots. They were, they were the tradition of the elders. They weren't from the scriptures. They were human traditions. There's perhaps some wisdom in them. But they were human nonetheless. And so they're appalled. Jesus, you and your disciples, you don't wash your hands. Do you not care about being clean before God? Which is why verse 6 and verse 7 hit us so hard in the face. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of man. They, you honour me with your lips. You can say the right thing and you can sound keen. You can look holy even, but in reality your hearts are far from me. They don't actually do what pleases God, but they obey man-made rules. And an example of these man-made rules, well, another one, verse 9 to 13, you've got this example of Korban. Korban was a kind of a vow you could make that would designate some of your money to God. You sort of tag this money for him. So imagine the scenario, you've generously dedicated a whole stash of money to Corban, dedicating it to God, and then your parents get ill, perhaps into financial problems, and you say, look, you know that money that I made Corban, can I undedicate it, please? Something really important has come up, my parents are ill, and yet the Pharisees, teachers of the law, they say, sorry, that's gone now, that's, that's Corban now. You'll have to tell your parents you can't help them. But Jesus says that's sin. You, your human Corban tradition means that you aren't looking after your parents as you're meant to. You, you are sinning. You're sinning against God. You are making up extra rules that end up trumping God's law. And we need to take note because the human heart has a tendency to do that. Adding these things may have been wise. In and of themselves, they aren't wrong. They, they might even be good, but, but the way that we add extra laws is, is just something that we love to do. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. I, I think it's there in Genesis 3. Do you remember, as we've seen in weeks gone by, what does Eve say as she talks to the serpent about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She says, we must not eat from it, and we must not touch it, or we will surely die. But where's the touch it from? As far as you can tell, she's added it. Touching it is never mentioned by God. So is she doing some kind of extra protection? We love to add rules to protect ourselves, just to be safe. And of course, those things aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. They might be good, they might be wise. But here in Mark 7, there's a pattern that crops up again and again and again in the Bible, where we begin to trust and rely on the additions to God's law, rather than to actually what he said. 
It works its way out in all kinds of ways. We end up trusting in human wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And that was just where the Pharisees had slipped up. For them, cleanness was all about keeping the dirt away, not letting unclean things get in and pollute us. And this is really important. It's important for a number of reasons. One, we've said in weeks gone by that the world assumes the human nature is basically good. A culture, as a culture, people are confused about sin and evil and right and wrong and tolerance and absolute statements about that kind of thing. And in many people's eyes, we're born okay on the inside. We look at little cute innocent babies. And the danger, they say, is, well, you're just, as you grow up, you're polluted by influences. You're, you're polluted by things outside of us. Not necessarily the food we keep, eat, but the company we keep. The friends at school, the habits that we observe in others, the, the bad example of parents, the influence of the TV and the internet. And you see, badness is out there somewhere. And if that's the case, I must do all that I can to keep the badness out there, out there. And if I stay away from dirty movies and dirty people and bad influences, maybe I can keep myself from being undefiled. Maybe I can be clean. If I hedge my children with, with really tight rules, if I can control them and where they go and who they see and who they speak to and what they watch and keep them really close to me on a really tight leash and I don't let them mix with bad people, maybe they'll stay clean. If I install covenant eyes on my computer or I avoid that newsagent, maybe I can keep the sexual dirt away from me. That's what the Pharisees are doing, isn't it? They're, they're pumping all of their energy into trying to keep the dirt outside of them. They're trying to protect themselves. But Jesus completely blows that idea away. Because he says fundamentally it's not a question of external uncleanness, it's internal. And of course those things we've mentioned might be wise and might be good and might be helpful. But they don't solve the real problem. Washing doesn't help with true dirt and defilement. Washing won't make you clean. As Isaiah said, so Jesus picks up in verse 14, it's all about the heart. Let me read from 14 onwards. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me everyone and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them, rather it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, then out of the body. In saying this, he declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Do you see what makes you unclean? It's your heart. You can't fake what your heart's like. Do you want to know what you're really like? Well, in a sense, think, how is my heart doing? 
When am I, when am I at my worst, my grumpiest, my angriest, my, my most disobedient, my least content? And we make excuses and we say, well, that situation doesn't help me. Those people, they just know how to press my buttons. And we defend our words or our thoughts or our actions, but actually, that's our heart. That's the real us, the natural us. That's the kind of statement that loses you friends. Jesus says, we're not basically good. We don't just need education. We're not just a product of external forces that pollute us. Our hearts naturally are unclean. It's interesting, I think I've said before, but it's one of the reasons given why Scandinavian crime dramas are so popular at the moment. It's because historically in Scandinavia, they've not lost the doctrine of original sin. So whether it's at Wallander, or The Killing, or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. They're very popular, acclaimed, award-winning, but they're all very dark. One article I read speaks of the fact that in them there's an indelible mark of sin and the temptation to do it. They are gritty, authentic, real, and they understand the heart. They understand original sin. Our culture over here is quite different. Again, you can track it back. Some say it's from nearly as early as the late 17th century. This is in the realms of crime dramas. The reason given for crime there is that circumstances cause crime. You are a product of your environment. And of course, again, circumstances will play a part, influencing what we do and how we live. But Jesus says the root problem, the foundational issue, is our hearts. It's not our circumstances. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. All these evil come, evils come from inside and defile a person. The problem is not a behaviour problem. It's not simply try a bit harder, be a bit more self-controlled. The problem is our hearts. And often our problem is that sin is like body odour. It's like your BO. You lose sensitivity to it. You don't notice it in yourselves. You get used to it. Our consciences get seared. Our hearts get hardened. We deceive ourselves. We think we're okay. We're blind to what we're really like. But then sometimes passages like this smack us in the face and remind us what our hearts are really like. The problem is our hearts. Hearts make us unclean. Which is why, for the Christian, the promise of a new heart, such extraordinary good news, it's amazing news, news for people like you and people like me. We've read it before in the series, but rejoice with me in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is looking ahead to the time of Jesus, when God will come and deal with his people, Deal with people like us in a new way. Let me read it to us from verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people and I'll be your God and I will save you from all your uncleanness. You see, the, the transformation that God promises it is total. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I'm going to just briefly skirt over four things in this passage from the New Covenant. I'd love you to reflect on them this week. I know most of you say, well, I'm never going to do that. But just try and write them down. Chat to a friend. Chat to a friend over coffee, or if you're in a home group, then maybe talk about them in your home group. But just four things to reflect upon the new covenant in Christ. Firstly, he's going to cleanse us from impurities. He's going to give us new hearts of flesh. He's going to put his spirit in us, and he'll be our God and we'll be his people. So he's going to cleanse us, firstly. Verse 25 and verse 29. Blood cleanses us from sin. We'll have more on that in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, just remember Hebrews 9, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And yet we now have his perfect, sufficient sacrifice. His blood is enough. It's enough for you. It stretches back as far as you can go, and it stretches ahead as far as you can see. It is completely sufficient for all who trust in him. He has been punished in our place and he has cleansed us from our sin forever. You are clean. There is no sin too big. There is no sin too many. In Christ, under the new covenant, you are clean. But it's more than that. It's not just that we're clean. We're now able to live for him. Jesus says that the problem in our hearts isn't that we need some kind of medication, some spiritual beta blockers or statins or some kind of short-term fix to deal with our hearts. Now secondly, we have a new heart of flesh. Verse 26. I want to say, if you're a Christian here this morning, that is what you have in Christ. That is God's gift to you under the new covenant. The old has gone, the new has come, and you are alive. You have a new heart of flesh, which is extraordinary news. But you know, if you're anything like me, you begin to think, well, is it? Because I've got questions. If I have a new heart, if Ezekiel's right, then how come under the surface I still see the sort of Mark 7 stuff? How come I see the sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly? If I have a new heart, why are they still around? And we think, well, maybe my heart's not new. Maybe I've not been transformed. Maybe, do those questions plague you? I think this is really important. Please grasp this this morning. You have been cleansed and in Christ you are new. You have a new heart, but you are being cleansed. You are being made new. It's as if there's an already and there's a not yet. Here's how some of the guys doing the shame conference talk about it that Kitty mentioned, perhaps to whet your appetites. 
They say this, I think it's really helpful and really important. They say, when the Bible talks about the gift of a new heart, it doesn't mean a heart that is immediately perfected, but rather a heart that is capable of being changed. See that, it's not immediately perfected, but is capable of being changed. Changed A heart of stone which cannot be moulded becomes a heart of flesh which is now malleable. Jesus came so that human beings who were stuck would not be stuck anymore. And his work on the cross targets our hearts, our our core desires, our motivations. When our hearts change, everything we do changes too. Do you see, we have hearts of flesh which are are malleable, mouldable, changeable. We don't have hearts of stone anymore. So it's a daily thing. In Christ we are clean and yet we are being made clean. It's why, as we saw last term in 2 Timothy, Paul can encourage Timothy to cleanse himself. Do you remember? It's why, as we saw a fortnight ago in Ephesians 5, Paul writes of Jesus cleansing his church in an ongoing kind of way. And it's why you and I still struggle with sin. Because we have these new clean hearts in Christ, but we're still in these bodies and we we forget who we are in him and we dance to the old tunes and we live the old way. But friends, we have malleable hearts now. They are alive, responsive. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember your new heart. Third one, verse 27, is that we have his spirit living in us, equipping us, enabling us, changing us, transforming us, helping us each day to live for him. Each and every day, each and every circumstance, God is with you, in you, helping you. Again, of course, we forget who we are. We forget our new status. We, we live as if we're the old us, getting caught up in old patterns, old ways of doing things. But because we're under the new covenant and his spirit lives in us, then sin is not inevitable anymore. We can grow and mature and develop and flourish. It means that we don't always lose each daily battle because he is with us. It means that God himself has come to live in each of us. To live a life that pleases him. And then fourthly and finally, from Ezekiel 36, you see there in verse 28, you will be my people and I will be your God. Now we can truly know the God whom we were created to know. And it's an intimate kind of knowledge. We're his friends. We don't need to go through special days or special places or achieve sufficient grades to know him. We know him in Christ. We can know him as our father. In Christ we are clean forever. The dirt and the defilement has been removed once and for all and so we can know the God of the universe who loves us. Let's pray. As we pray, I want to finish with a brief story from Mark 1. 
Jesus meets the man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1. I hope you'll see why, as I read it, it gives us a picture of something of what it means to be cleansed, given life in him. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who can make dirty people clean. Thank you that you can give us life. Thank you that we can know you and be completely acceptable to you. And we thank you for these extraordinary truths that Ezekiel promises and Jesus' actions. Thank you that you do, you have cleansed us. Thank you that the blood of Jesus is completely sufficient. Thank you that it is so powerful. Thank you that you are so kind. Thank you that you've given us new hearts, soft, malleable, changeable hearts. Thank you that you've put your spirit in us to help us to live for you each day. And thank you that we can know you as your children. Lord, we confess to you how often we we forget who we are in Christ and we live the old way. And so we pray that you would help us to become who we already are. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for your extraordinary love for us. Thank you that your cross purifies us. In your son's name we pray.